Welcome to another episode of Cadwalder's podcast series. My name is Mark Howe. I'm a tax partner at Cadwalder, and my practice primarily focuses on large investment banks and asset management. Today, I'm pleased to be joined by my Cadwalder colleague, Gary Silberstein, another tax partner at Cadwalder, as well as our special guest, Eric Wempen, who is head of tax at Benefit Street Partners. Eric, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your company? Thank you, Mark. My name is Eric Wempen, and I'm head of tax at Benefit Street Partners, where I also serve as legal counsel on acquisitions and M&A. Benefit Street is a credit-focused alternative asset manager with approximately $77 billion in AUM as of November. We're the credit arm and wholly owned subsidiary of Franklin Templeton, an investment manager with over $1.4 trillion in AUM. And Eric, can you tell us a little bit about your own professional life? Uh, yes, of course. So I've been at Benefit Street Partners for the past seven years. I spent the first portion of my career in the law firms and accounting firms before moving to in-house positions. I have had banking, insurance company, and fund experience, and have specialized in a number of different tax areas over the years, from international tax to derivatives and financial products. Gary, a little bit about yourself. Thanks, Mark. I'd be happy to. Uh, my name is Gary Silverstein, and I'm a tax partner at Cadwallader. I've been practicing here for a little over 20 years. Uh, my primary focus is securitization mostly securitizations of mortgage-related assets and other mortgage finance-related products. I work with a team of people at Cadwallader on CRE CLOs, including Mark, who uh, is a senior mentor of mine. Uh, also, Benefit Street is a client of Cadwallader's, and uh, Eric and I have worked on several CRE CLO transactions together. It's good to see you, Eric. So Gary, we'll kick this off with you just telling us what CRE CLOs really are or mean. Sure. So. CRE CLO stands for Commercial Real Estate Collateralized Loan Obligations, and it's a form of securitization that is used in the mortgage industry. It's somewhat different than a typical mortgage securitization. The deal life is somewhat shorter because the loans in the CRE CLO are usually shorter term transition type loans. Also, typical securitizations tend to be static pools. That is, you put a pool of loans into an issuer at the closing of the securitization and the loans just amortize until they're paid off. Whereas in a CRE CLO, it's typically more of a dynamic vehicle uh, that reinvests the proceeds of loans that pay off with new loans. But essentially it's a form of securitization like many others. And Eric, can you describe how Benefit Street plays in this space? Of course, so Benefit Street's core real estate business is originating and managing commercial real estate debt. We make first mortgage loans for commercial, industrial, and multifamily borrowers in the 10 to $250 million range. But we also invest in some subordinate loans, MES loans, and real estate securities. Our primary vehicle is our publicly traded mortgage REIT named Franklin BSP Realty Trust with a portfolio of approximately 6 billion. For economic and portfolio management reasons, half of the assets or about 3 billion consists of our CRE CLO positions. And of the nine CRE CLOs we've issued to date, five of them are still active. So the CRE CLO is an important piece of your overall product line. Yes, that's correct. Although we do have some other leveraged REIT structures for offshore investors. REITs have increasingly become the vehicle of choice for both US tax exempt and non-US offshore investors who are seeking exposure to the originated and managed commercial real estate industry for a number of reasons, but primarily for tax reasons. Why? Because originating U.S. loans creates a business for tax purposes. For tax exempt, using leverage in the business creates what's called unrelated business taxable income, or UBTI. 
For offshore investors, the business creates effectively connected income or ECI. And both of these are toxic to the investors because they create quite a large tax drag where there otherwise wouldn't be one. The tax drag can reach 30% federal and state for tax exempts and up to 60% for some offshore investors, assuming the 30% branch profits tax applies. However, REIT solves these issues and purges the UBTI and ECI. Now, REITs do kick off dividends, but for tax exempts, the dividends are tax-free. And for offshore investors, it's still far superior to full tax on the ECI. Uh, moreover, treaty investors can receive reduced withholding rates. There's an even more tax advantage structure for offshore investors, since U.S. withholding tax rates on certain types of interest income can be tax-free or at least subject to reduced treaty rates. A leveraged REIT, where a fund levers up its interest in a REIT using debt, can offer a blended withholding tax rate from 3 to 15%, depending on the investor's home jurisdiction and ownership interest. So Eric, your basic point is that the business of origination and then holding creates uh, tax barriers for an important part of your investor base, namely foreign investors and tax exempt investors. And the REIT solves, uh, solves for this by acting as a blocker for tax. That's correct, but it's also important to understand the portfolio management benefits of CRE CLOs. They actually end up being much better financing tools for REITs and other methods. Why? Well, first, because they protect CRE managers from liquidity risk. And second, because CLO financing is term matched with the REITs actual loans. So breaking those down one, uh, one by one. With respect to liquidity risk, CRE managers really like CLOs because the real estate collateral is not marked to market as with other financing methods. So most institutions lending to REITs adjust their pricing uh, on troubled collateral, which can result in margin calls. If a REIT is running at high leverage and doesn't have a large cash reserve, this can really have a hard time protecting its book against margin calls and get into sticky liquidity issues. With the CLO, however, operational issues are managed through the CLO trust, so there's no cascading effect on the REIT's book. All cash flows just pay down the CLO bonds. Since CLO managers are hands-on when it comes to managing the underlying loan pool, we're more comfortable taking this risk. As I mentioned, the second benefit to CLOs is that they're term matched. So whereas most CRE loans have a five-year maturity and REITs generally finance using bank loans with shorter maturities, REITs often worry about replacing their financing. Since CRE CLOs have a maturity of up to 15 years, REITs can match their assets and liabilities without issue, which just protects risk much better. CLOs also give REITs the ability to reinvest upon paydown, keeping the CLO assets at a maximum advance rate. So Gary, Eric has just teed this up with describing match financing against the asset base. What's the next step on tax planning? Right, so Eric has described what would be, you know, a conventional uh, securitization strategy. Uh, and the next step for that is to determine what the best tax vehicle would be for that. And securitization is a, a good end game strategy for a company like uh, Benefit Street. Uh, the predominant tax vehicle used in the securitization of mortgage loans is a REMIC, a real estate mortgage investment conduit. And REMICs are very useful in that they ensure that the issuer is not subject to an entity level tax. And it also provides beneficial tax treatment to the investors uh, that they have the benefit of treating their investment as debt, which is very useful for foreign investors and uh, taxable investors as well. Uh, in fact, when Congress enacted the REMIC rules and said that a REMIC would not be subject to corporate level tax and have the benefits we just described, they also created a set of rules known as the Taxable Mortgage Pool Rules, or TMP. And these rules are sort of dubbed as the evil twin 
so to speak, of the REMIC rules. A mortgage securitization that is not a REMIC very likely is a TMP and is automatically treated as a corporation for tax purposes. Congress wanted to force the use of REMICs essentially. But the issue for companies like Benefit Street and the REIT that they own is that a REMIC is treated as a sale for tax purposes. And one of the core features of a REIT is that a REIT holds its assets as investments. It's a real estate investment trust, R-E-I-T, designed to buy or originate and then to hold. And the REMIC structure works against that. A REMIC is treated as a sale for tax purposes. The sponsor of a REMIC is treated as having sold the loans into a REMIC, taking back the securities that are backed by the mortgage loans and then selling those securities to third-party investors. And all of that essentially means that the REIT has engaged in a sale. And at its core, it begins to look like dealer activity, much like a real estate investor who might purchase a large lot of property, then subdivide it into smaller pieces in order to sell them. This type of activity is clearly prohibited for a REIT to do. And in fact, if a REIT were to engage in dealer activity, it would be subject to a 100% tax on any profit or gain that it earned from the sale or securitization. So Gary, you're saying that the type of financing that Eric has described would naturally fit into the REMIC rules, but because Eric is using a REIT to solve for other issues, REMIC is really not available to the REIT because of the prohibitive tax. So that's exactly right, Mark. Um, Benefit Street or REIT needs to find a match term financing tax structure that is treated as a financing and not as a sale. And a REMIC is uh, treated as a sale. So if we can't do REMICs because Eric needs the REIT for his non-US investors and his tax investors, and you're saying no REMIC, what's left? Well, theoretically, we could drop these into our taxable REIT sub as you may be aware, a REIT can drop up to 20% of its assets into a taxable subsidiary, thereby protecting the REIT from the 100% prohibited transaction tax rules, which are there to ensure that REITs don't conduct dealer activity. The problem, however, is that a taxable REIT sub pays full tax on loans and sells through the REMIC, and that ends up being cost prohibitive. So instead of using a TRS, we actually use a different structure, the qualified REIT subsidiary. Right, Eric. The qualified REIT subsidiary, or QRS, is the ideal entity uh, to use for a securitization by a REIT. Uh, QRS is treated as wholly owned by the REIT and it's disregarded into the REIT. So in other words, a transfer of the assets into the QRS is essentially ignored and the debt that, that is issued by the QRS is treated as debt that's actually issued by the REIT and therefore would be treated as a financing by the REIT. No sale takes place, even the putative sale of the assets into the QRS is ignored and the entire issuance of securities is treated as a financing by the REIT. So Gary and Eric, you've just invoked the magical QRS to solve the REIT REMIC standoff. But what is it, Gary, that you're not telling us about when it comes to TMP and QRS? It's a fair point, Mark. Uh, you're right. The TMP rules rear their ugly head uh, in this context and declare that the issuer, that is not a REMIC, is treated as a corporation for tax. But if, if a REIT owns 100% of a corporation, and so long as that corporation doesn't elect to be treated as taxable, it automatically defaults into be treated 
as a QRS, which is a disregarded entity of a REIT. So although it is a corporation, it has the benefit of being treated as a disregarded entity uh, for purposes of taxability. In other words, that it would not attract its own entity level tax. So Eric and, and Gary, it sounds as though the REIT-REMIC standoff is solved by the REMIC rules equal twin, which imputes a corporation to the securitization. But the REIT latches onto that corporation by saying, I own it in its entirety, and I can claim it's a QRS, i.e. it's disregarded, doesn't exist, no, no corporate level tax. But some strings come with that, don't they? That's true. Uh to qualify as a QRS, a REIT has to own 100% of the equity of the corporation, in which case, in the context of a securitization, it would need to own 100% of the equity in the QRS. A typical securitization issues multiple classes of debt, but some of those classes of debt are more subordinate to the others, and there's at least some question as to whether or not they would be respected as debt for tax purposes, considering that they bear a lot of the economic risk of loss and ownership of the pool of assets. That being the case, one of the typical restrictions that a REIT has to live with if it does a QRS securitization is that it can issue only those classes that it has a adequate level of certainty that they will be treated as debt for tax. Anything less than that has to be retained by the REIT. And what that often means is that they will not get as much financing as they would have hoped had they been able to finance this in a way other than the QRS structure. And Eric, uh, Gary has said in other contexts that in a non-REIT securitization versus a REIT securitization, the REIT securitization may only leverage up maybe 85% rather than close to 100. Is that a barrier to your to your business people? Sometimes, but that is a pretty high LTV. So it's really just the cost of doing business. I think the main point here is it's just what you have to do to avoid the 100% prohibitive transactions tax. And Eric, what is the other string that's attached to uh, going down this non-REMIC route? You're right, Mark. And that string is actually tax drag. And the tax drag comes in the form of the excess inclusion income. This excess inclusion income falls into the categories we discussed earlier, the tax exempts and offshore investors try to avoid uh, essentially UBTI for tax exempts and ECI for offshore investors. Essentially, Congress didn't want CRE CLO issuers to end up with better tax treatment than REMIX, so they created parity. Just like REMIX have a taxable tranche called the REMIX residual, REIT TMPs are treated as synthetic REMIX and must also have a taxable residual. The amount of excess inclusion income on a standard CLO is generally between a couple hundred thousand and a couple of million, depending on the overall size of cash flows. You know, so... Eric, you mentioned the idea of a synthetic REMIC, and that actually is one of the techniques uh, that uh, people avail themselves of when trying to figure out how to compute the excess inclusion income that is related to a CRE CLO securitization that's done by a REIT. Essentially, you take a careful look at the cash flow and ask yourself what might have been the amount of excess inclusion income that would have been earned by the QRS issuer had it been a REMIC. And use that methodology to compute the EII, which sometimes can be less than the amount of EII that would have otherwise been computed had we looked at the QRS as an actual taxpayer and its net income. 
You're absolutely right, Gary. What we do is we take the standard equity tranche and we retranche it into generally two to three different tranches with the upper tranche being the one that's allocated the EII, the right. excess inclusion income. Because the REMIC rules would let you further allocate the equity piece because the REMIC rules are more beneficial or more generous in allowing even more subordinate classes as being treated as debt. And the theory is, is that had we done this as a REMIC, we would have been able to use those additional tranches as deductible payments and therefore lower the overall excess inclusion income. That's correct. So generally we have outside modelers come in and model out the cash flows and come up with those different tranches so that we can mitigate uh, the excess inclusion amount in that final tranche. So Eric, you've just quantified and minimized this tax drag, the so-called excess inclusion income. But if nothing more is done, I take it it goes out to your investors as a form of income. So that foreign investors may see a withholding tax and tax exempt investors may see UBTI. Do you live with that? So you're right, Mark. It is problematic actually paying that EII out to the investors, even though it's minimized. Your tax exempt and offshore investors will either be receiving UBTI or uh, withholding on the ECI. So it ends up being an investor relations issue. But there's also a bigger issue for public REITs. If you're seeking entry to the Russell 2000, the REIT has to purge the EAI and document in its securities disclosures that the issue has been addressed, or your REIT's going to be denied access to the index. We normally address this by interposing a taxable subsidiary somewhere in the structure in order to pay the tax. So the distributions can be made tax-free without the EAI tank. So Eric, for your public REIT, it's really important that this tax strike not leak out to your investors. How do you get that done technically? So Mark, what we actually do is we end up creating a REIT within the REIT. And this mini REIT uh, is where you end up putting the CRE CLOs. It holds all of your, your REIT CRE CLOs. And all of the EII that's generated by this lower tier REIT is then allocated to the REIT's taxable REIT subsidiary, or TRS, which pays the tax. And it cleanses the EAI taint and leaves no EAI left within the REIT to impact the shareholders. The downside to the mini REIT structure is that all of the standard REIT compliance functions have to be performed for this additional REIT, including the relevant shareholder tests, the annual and quarterly REIT testing. So it's more complicated and slightly more costly, but for a public REIT such as ours, the benefits to tax-exempt and offshore investors makes it well worth the effort and the cost. So Eric, in the public context, you block using the mini REIT within the REIT. How do you deal with it with your private REITs? So it's actually quite a bit easier with the private REIT. With our private leveraged REITs where we have investors owning a fund that owns the REIT, all we do is place a taxable subsidiary between the REIT and the fund, and then you allocate 100% of the excess inclusion income using a splitter partnership to the taxable subsidiary. So Eric, that's exactly right. So what ends up happening is there's going to be two REITs in the system. Essentially, there's going to be a mini REIT, the sole asset of which is the QRS that owns the mortgage loans that does the securitization. The excess inclusion income that is generated by that securitization will flow through that REIT and then get allocated to a partnership. One of the partners of whom is a taxable REIT subsidiary and the other partner of which is the main REIT, the primary REIT in which your investors invest making the structure a bit more complicated, but as efficient as possible. Gary and Eric, thanks a lot. This is like watching a tax ping pong game.
We started with Eric and his investors. We happened on a REIT. We turned it over to you, Gary. Gary says, we can't do a REMIC if we're doing a REIT. Eric says, okay, we'll take the penalty of not being a REMIC because we are a REIT. Gary says, but you're gonna have to pay tax drag like a REMIC. Eric says, we can't have that for our public REIT. So Gary and Eric come up with, with a mothership on top of the mini REIT. Essentially right. Any closing thoughts? First of all, thank you, Mark, for putting this together. This is uh, great, and Eric, thanks for coming. Uh, I would say that uh, REITs are frequent users of the CRE CLO securitization. Uh, it allows for a tax-free securitization, but they have to be mindful of the fact that they might end up financing less than they would otherwise want, and they have to manage the uh, economic and investor relations pertaining to the excess inclusion income that comes with the securitization. So I think my final point would be that regardless of the type of investor, Benefit Street generally has a CRE structure that fits the investor's profile, whether it's just our public REIT, our leveraged REIT, or even a note structure for offshore insurance companies. Eric and Gary, thank you again. And thank you all for listening. Please feel free to reach out to any one of us if you have any questions or comments. The material and information contained in the podcast is for general informational purposes only. Any use of the audio within this podcast without the express consent of Cadwallader is prohibited. Quotes from this podcast may not be used without the express permission of the speaker.